0: Alright, I'll do Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for fifteen dollars a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on Us. Mintmobile.com switch. Upfront payment of forty-five dollars equivalent to fifteen dollars per month. Unlimited over forty gigabytes per month, face lower speeds. Videos at four eighty p. Active mint customers by five thirty one twenty-four. Get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG.
1: Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that.
2: and welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This podcast is for listeners who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean to learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Ahmed Almazmi, a PhD candidate at Princeton University, and we have a special co-host today.
0: Hi, I'm your host, Kelvin Ng, a PhD candidate at Yale University.
2: Today, we are brought here to talk to Professor Kalyani Ramnath, about her new book, Boats in a Storm, Law, Migration, and Decolonization in South and Southeast Asia between 1942 to 1962, published by Stanford University Press just this month. Professor Ramanath is an assistant professor of history at the University of Georgia with research and teaching interests in legal history, histories of migration and displacement, transnational history, and questions of archival methods. Boats in a Storm tells a fascinating story that starts with uh, more than a century before World War II, when traders, merchants, financiers, and laborers steadily moved between places on the Indian Ocean, trading goods, supplying credit, and seeking work. This all changed with the war, and as India, Burma, Ceylon, and Malaya Rested independence from the British Empire. Set against the uh, t- tumult of the post-war period, Boats in a Storm centers on the legal struggles of migrants to return their traditional rhythms and patterns of life, illustrating how they experience citizenship and decolonization. Even as nascent citizenship regimes and divergent political trajectories of decolonization Papered over migrations between South and Southeast Asia, migrants continued to recount cross-border histories and encounters with the law. These accounts often obscured by national and international political developments and settled the notion that static national identities and loyalties had emerged, fully formed, and unblemished by migrant past in the aftermath of empires. Drawing on archival materials from India, Sri Lanka, Myanmar, London, and Singapore, Kalyani Ramnath narrates how former migrants battle legal requirements to revive pre war circulations of credit, capital, and labor in a post war context of rising ethno nationalisms that accuse migrants of stealing jobs and hoarding land. Ultimately, The book shows how decolonization was marked not only by shipwrecked empires and nation states assembled and bordered from the debris of imperial collapse, but also by these forgotten stories of wartime displacement, their unintended consequences, and long afterlives. Welcome, Professor Ramna, to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, and thanks so much for taking the time to talk about your book.
1: Thank you very much, Kevin and Ahmed, for having me.
2: We are happy to have you today and we would like first to learn about the authors. So can you please start us off by saying a few words about yourself? That is where you grew up, where you went to school, how you became interested in your field of study, and if you would like to mention any mentors and books.
1: Absolutely. Um, So I grew up um, in India, in Kerala, right by the ocean. Um, so, in the ultimate cliche, uh, yes, this book was—you um, know—I've always had a sort of hankering, um, um, and sort of my world has always been shaped by um, its proximity to the seashore. So, I grew up in Kerala, um, went to school there, um, and moved uh, to Bangalore um, for my undergrad degree in um, in law and and and, uh, and the arts. So. Um, my undergraduate degree is um, from the National Law School of India University in Bangalore, um, and there um, I had the great good fortune of being able to pursue a law degree, a professional degree, alongside um, um, humanities and social science subjects. So it was very much structured as a an interdisciplinary approach to to um, law. Um, I have to say I veered much more into that direction all of the humanities subjects and in particular history um it was sort of my first um first encounter with sort of critical approaches to the uh, to to history um at a law school um so unsurprisingly um when i graduated um i decided that i had to explore that interest further um and uh, with the you know uh, the at the sort of um, with the support of many wonderful teachers there, I was able to go to Yale Law School uh, for my master's in law. Um, at the time, and I think it, this, this is still true, uh, that the Yale Law School um, master's in law supports, um, you know, sort of an academic career. And I found it super exciting to be, you know, um, be able to take courses in legal history, which was you know something that I had increasingly got interested in. Um, and uh, you know, at at Yale, there were all of these courses on legal history that were on offer, and I and I was in every one of them. <laughs> so um, at the end of that time, um, uh, you know, I, I I got the the opportunity to return to the National Law School to to teach to actually. Um, stand in for to, for my own legal history teacher, uh, Dr. Elizabeth. So, went back to law school um, and taught legal history there for a couple of years. And I have to say that was transformative. It was the first time that I realized that I could actually this was this was more than a passing fancy that this was something that I was really interested in. Um, um, and um, you know, during my time at Yale, I also had the Good fortune of taking classes in the anthropology department, um, uh, uh, you know, reading scores in South Asian studies and so on, and you know, all of that sort of, what's the word for it? It's sort of amalgamated and sort of became this, you know, the the questions I was asking um, were, you know, sort of became informed by my um, my sort of. Um, initial training in legal history, my sort of interest in South Asian studies, um, um, and so on and so forth. So, you know, at the end of those two years, um, I decided that um, I would return to the United States for for a PhD. Um, and uh, as luck would have it, uh, you know, Princeton at the time um, had a wonderful reputation as the place to to pursue a PhD in in legal history, particularly legal histories of South Asia. Um, So there I was able to work with um, Professor Gyan Prakash and Professor Hendrik Hartog. Um, Mm -hmm. Gyan, of course, is a leading historian of South Asia. And then um, Doug Hartog is perhaps the most um, prolific and brilliant historian of law in the American context. And I was... Able to work with both of them, um, and so that's that. Uh, it was at Princeton that I began the dissertation project that eventually became uh, Botswana's charm, um, and then finally, um, just before my appointment at UGA, um, which I have now, um, I held a three-year postdoctoral fellowship at the Center for History and Economics at Harvard University. And that's where I kind of reworked the book, sort of stretching the canvas in different ways, and seeing how um, what a, a book could be. What a uh, you know what, what's the sort sort of story that people would want to read about um, these places and times that I had spent nearly um, six to eight years researching. And that's you know that's how I got to the book. Um, and at present, I get to teach uh, um, some wonderful students here at UGA um, both. Both who are interested in going to law school and those who are deeply skeptical of the law. So I enjoy sort of straddling those two worlds, so law and history, and continue to do so. And what a
0: magnificent book it is! Uh, mm-hmm. I really Thank have to you. congratulate you on on such a tour de force. Doctor Robert, I I have to before we delve into the chapters of the book, I have a yes. question about the title of the book. Yes.
1: No. Well,
0: it's a direct allusion to the Tamil novelist Bas Singaram's magnum opus of that very same name, a book, mm-hmm. which captures the mobile lives of migrants on the eve of World War II. You mm-hmm. might be a book as an attempt to trace in the archives of law what yes. things are in fiction. Mm-hmm. Tell us a bit more about the significance of the title of the book.
1: Yes. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you for noticing that, too. Um, I do mention it in sort of the preface of the book that this was. What I was inspired by, and I think it's just such a, um, you know, um, such a powerful way to capture what I'm trying to do in the book, which is to show, um, you know, just how um, fluid, how fluctuating, how ever changing this world was in, the, in between the 1940s and the 1960s, has um, sort of nation states emerge from sort of the what I'm calling. Uh, the debris of imperial collapse um and so it, you know it's it it's, it it was a gesture um also to the context in which th- that I was researching it was important to me that it have a have a, um, a powerful sense of place um um it was a gesture to the languages that I was working with in my research um um so it was all of all of those things that led me to pick um pick this as a as a title. Um, but it's also just really powerful to think about, you know, um uh, boats as opposed to, you know, uh uh, you know, there's a there's a sense of scale there that I was trying to capture as well, right? I mean it's not, you know, it's not the lads team also the cruise ships, it's 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 boats. It's the um uh, uh, it's the tiny little katumarums or the uh the you know the 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 little boats that are use for the coasting trade and so on—it's—it's it's a sense of scale, and I guess we'll come to this later on in the interview. Also, this attention to scale um, in the book. So, it—it's at the at the at, at the scale of people's lives, at the at the level of people's lives, their ordinary sort of happinesses and sadnesses. And so, you know, it's it's that uh, tool that I wanted to capture with the title. Um, it was the title of the dissertation, and I know sometimes. Um, you know, people tend to change that for the book, but I've only received positive feedback about this title, so I was quite committed to do it for the book as well. So, I ended up holding on to it for the book. I hope that sort of does that does that sort of answer your question.
2: Yeah, yeah. it did. Yeah. Such a beautiful story. <laughs> I'm glad actually you, you kept the title. It's also reminiscent of the dows on the other side of the ocean.
1: Absolutely,
2: absolutely. And especially during the 20th century when we all read about steamers, but not about boats, so.
1: That's right, that's right, that's exactly right, yeah.
2: (laughs) Let's now turn to the book and its chapters, but before delving into the chapters, uh, I would like to ask about, uh, there's a growing interest in developing body of scholarship, advancing legal approaches to the history of the Indian Ocean. Yes. And your acknowledgement uh, attests to that, the many names that you mentioned there. How would you situate boats in a storm uh, in this legal oceanic turn? And what are the prospective contributions of the subfield uh, in fostering historiographical interventions and in the way historians conceptualize and write about the transregional histories of law and the ocean?
1: No, absolutely. That's such a wonderful question, I mean. Um I do very much see myself as part of this conversation and the sort of move towards, um um thinking oceanically um and with legal archives. Um and you know perhaps the most um powerful rendering of this um you know with the works of Pat Bashara, Fatilaya, um Reni Samavani, and you can see and hopefully their influence on um um as you read the book, um, you know, the um I think they, as 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 a as a um, within this conversation, I think there's 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 two things that are really powerful, right? I mean, the, the one is obviously um, this idea that um, law is not sort of a, a territorially bounded and particularly land based um, um, uh, activity or endeavor that it travels in these very interesting, multiple, and overlapping ways. Um, I, I I hope that um if you go to the introduction you get a sense of of that um of that the 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 power of that idea of the travels of law right how does law travel does it travel as just as precedent does it travel as codes does it travel as paper is it in the hands of um, litigants you know how does law travel and and the answer that the book gives is it's all of them right I mean it's it's all of them and it's in tracing these overlapping itineraries that you get a sense of just how complex and how multifaceted that world is and how um, it sort of intersects with people's lives. So I think um, this sort of historiographic turn has really given us uh, this, the tools to kind of think about how um, um, how Lord travels and how it shapes people's people's lives um and the other is to really question what law is um and you know how is that that definition of law unsettled by this oceanic town, right i mean the um uh it's not just a question of um travelling across a land border there are so many other contingencies built into those travels and i think um all of the books that i mentioned earlier and, and i hope this one too sort of um erases those questions if it doesn't always conclusively answer them, right? I mean, it just gives you a different framework, a different paradigm through which to view those questions. Um, The second, and I think this is where Botanist Storm is hopefully going to open up a new um, sort of um, avenue for research, is really in locating it in this um late colonial or in in the case of the book itself in the in the age of decolonization. And it's something that I think um for mul- multiple reasons, for you know, lack of access to archives, for, you know, um, funding constraints when it comes to doing multi-sided research. Um, for a number of reasons, um, it's not often that um that post um 47 research is pursued in in this kind of way um and I think that's where legal histories of the Indian Ocean is is headed <laughs> in this sort of you know thinking not just about connections and comparisons but also about disconnections and disjunctures um and I think um here the age of decolonization is really powerful because it just it, th- these are difficult questions these are um but equally important, I would say, questions to ask about how these two regions are connected. How What does it mean for us um, uh, to look at questions of citizenship and belonging in this trans-regional way, as opposed to um, thinking of it in within you know, uh, sort of nationalist frameworks? And I think that um, the methods that Indian Ocean historians have sort of perfected um, over the years it can really lend itself to asking this question in very subtle and nuanced ways. Um, and so that's where I hope both will make an impact and hopefully, um, um, you know, spur on a, a new set of projects.
0: Uh, Dr. Ramlod, I loved your answer to, to that question because mm-hmm. it leads us really nicely to to my next question, which is that among the signal interventions of your book, It's this really careful treatment of the law as an archive, which might highlight broader debates over citizenship regimes and political belonging. Mm. You argue for the need to view law not simply as doctrine or as principle, but more Mm -hmm. more as practice. Yes. Uh, Can you perhaps tell us a bit more about how the archive of jurisdiction might provide a lens into these broader processes of decolonization and state making, And here, I have to mention as well that you've drawn on archival material from various countries, from India and Sri Lanka and Myanmar to Singapore and the UK. So Mm -hmm. what archives did you turn to and what insights did they yield into these everyday lives of migrants and how they navigated their legal struggles?
1: Mm -hmm. No, that's a really interesting question and really goes to the heart of how I sort of conceptualized this project, right? Um, And so... um, the the idea of law as archive is something that I think both it adopts and I I hope by the end of the book you also start to question it right? uh, which is that you know an archive um has a certain you know the, it, it it um uh, brings up question of how questions of how it's ordered organized someone is actively involved in sort of setting it up in this way um um, and you know that that's, it was in a very sort of traditional formal archive that I started my research for the book. So um, I start. I wanted to uh, work with the records of the Madras High Court, which I um, um, which I was able to access, um, and also in the Tamil Nadu State Archives. So both very formal, traditional archives. But um, you know, um, it was. And I think I mentioned this in the book, but if it's not there, or it's you know it's been edited out. I should say this: um, you know, a, a record room of a, of a law court, right, um, is very different from uh, a formal archive or, or of the sort that the Nadu State Archives is. Right? It's um, it's not a record room is a living thing. It's a um, it's a, it, the records of previous um, um, cases um, are kept. On the premises of the court, because um, lawyers or judges or other officials in a court um, uh, might want to call upon it, Um, and this has everything to do with the way in which common law is practiced um, and which law is practiced in India and at the Madras High Court, which is that you know if you wanted to decide upon um, the judges wanted to decide on a case, they would have to look at the particulars of the case, but they would also have to. So to look at um, previous rulings, how had they decided uh, similar cases, can analogies be drawn or is this different? Um, And so, you know, for that reason, um, they would have to go back to cases that they had decided earlier and to those records. And it's for that reason that many of these records are are preserved. Um, It's for, you know, what lawyers would call precedent. It's for looking at precedent. Um, And so... You know, it's a it's a living thing in a way that I think is quite distinct from, uh, you know, the the archives of the government or a state. Um, so I got to work in those archives, my phys- physically, where, where I was looking at these records I was in one of these record rooms in the court. Um, but you know, in talking to the record room workers, um, I wanted to I wanted to work in the 1940s and the 60s precisely for this. You know, for looking at these moments of political possibility before nation states became sort of, you know, the, the borders became much more. So, you know, I asked them where are the records of the 1940s and the 50s, and they said, "Well, we're not, we not, you may not want to, you know, you may not want to attempt <laughs> looking, you know, in the, um, in the sort of, um, um, uh, in the rooms where we store those records." And it, it really was quite different when I finally got to access that um, from the ordered, organized um, archive that I was seeing elsewhere. Um, It was just paper, just mountains of paper. Um, And so it just became, you know, it became a sort of, it it was really that encounter with that archive that shaped my thinking um, and my narration of this project because, you know, it, it, it sort of began to think is is this an archive or is this detritus? <laughs> is this, this, this is this just um, paper that they have kept for you know um precedent purposes um or is it something else altogether and and I particularly was interested in you know in the in, in these in these records from the 1940s and 60s I started seeing that Madras was just not well, Um, uh, you know, just not a site where cases were being decided um, that had to do with things that were happening in India. It was actually things that were happening outside India that was also uh, the subject of many of these disputes. And that's how the project came to be. I started noticing these networks. Um, And so I started looking at those papers, reading through them. And in talking to the record room workers again, they said, well, these are not Precedent. This is all. Um, how do you say? Uh, these are all dis. They, they use the word dismissed cases. These are all dismissed cases. They don't. They don't have any value as precedent. But I said, well, it matters to the people who are engaged in that dispute. So it matters to me. <laughs> so then I started collecting those, those records, and um, you know, it's still. I sort of oscillate between those two things. You know, is it. What's what, what was that archive that I encountered? Is there, is there a distinct way in which one should think about that record room? And is there a way in which one should think about cases that are not celebrated, um, cases are, that are not, you know, sort of trials that get reported in newspapers, um, not fought by lawyers who are prominent or successful, but just really seemingly unimportant, incredibly banal cases? Uh, But once which I think I hope the book shows uh, was profoundly important to the people um, who were engaged in those disputes, um, because they were trying to retain what I'm calling in the book, the rhythms and patterns of of migrant lives. So it's a it's a it's a it's a question that I still sort of I still go back to that. That's the foundation of the book. Um, And from there, i sort of trace, you know, as I said earlier, the travels of law where did they have to go? Did the litigants move? Did the lawyers go? How did they get hold of the materials from other jurisdictions? Um, and from there Madras of course I traveled to Colombo, Yangon, um, have materials from Singapore and so on. Um, and so you see Madras not as um, the southern port city, but as an you know a as, as sort of a one vantage point with which to sort of look out on the shores of the Indian Ocean via the archives, no.
2: And I, I would add, uh, I encourage the readers also to check uh, the image that you've provided in the book, uh, which shows really a side of these heaps of paper that mm-hmm. I had a chance to look at the a larger picture you're yes. getting in the defense I was quite daunting to look at it. And I'm like, how could you make sense of all of this and yes. to write such a dissertation in the, the book? So that's really amazing that what you've done, and uh, and, uh, and wielding the archives and writing these uh, beautiful stories, um, you've contributed to the developing literature on South Asia's multiple uh, partitions. Uh, most uh, most historians who are familiar with the history of South Asia in the twentieth century are overwhelmed by the literature on the you know the known partition between uh, Pakistan and India but less is known about the partitions elsewhere uh, in the Indian ocean around this time. So in presenting a view from the perspective of migrants uh, whose lives were often uh, adrift between uh, incipient uh, national regimes, and uh, you make the case that the social legal history of ordinary actors might revise our understanding of the uh, mid-century moment uh, in mm-hmm. Southeast Asia's history. Uh, so can you situate this in relation to global conversations around um citizenship displacement and loyalty?
1: Absolutely. Thank you. Um this is this is something that I've sort of, you know, um again, um you know, this is this is very common when one is writing a book, right? I mean, you also want to unsettle um unsettle sort of received understandings of the place that you're writing about or the theme that you're writing about or um uh you know, how do we think about this differently. And you know, it was from that very sort of common sense um um uh, motive that I that I thought of this formulation of other partitions. Um and it was to ask uh you know where do the stories that I was seeing in the Madras High Court archives or um also sort of beginning to see in those where do those those fit within uh, within our understanding of this mid 20th century moment, and as you rightly said, um, there is and 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 you know sort of uh, uh, appropriately so, um, there is an emphasis on histories of uh, the India-Pakistan partition. Um, it is an event that that um, profoundly shaped and continues to have an impact on. Millions of people and their families uh, in the subcontinent shapes the culture, the politics, um, and sort of the dynamics of the region. So, um, my intention with sort of looking at this notion of other partitions was less to less to sort of diminish the importance of that event, which I think also casts its long shadow on the people who I talk about in this book, and I'll circle back to that in a second. Um, but also to ask, look, what other kinds of unravelings were happening at this time, um, and what um, uh, you know, how how can one think of them as partitions, uh, um, you know, or separations? Um, the, uh, the 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 um, how do you call it? The uh, separation between India and Burma, um, which was, you know, took place as a constitutional. Um, uh, constitutional separation in 1937 or 1930 between 1935 37, um, uh, is often referred to the people by to by the people that I write about in this book who are traveling between India and Burma as the Piripa, right? and the separation. They have their own name for it. So, it's not necessarily uh, uh, necessarily to to diminish the importance of the the 1947 partition, but to say look, there were other unravelings that were happening. And why have those stories uh, not been told alongside um, what we uh, are sort of appropriately also hearing about so much in the context of South Asian history? Um, and so, you know, this, this sense of um, what other partitions could be really emerged from the archival material that I was looking at. And it's a kind of slow unraveling, right? There is no... Um, there is no uh, line being drawn uh, between these uh, places in the way that uh, one sees in the context of the partition, the drawing of the Radcliffe line. There is no um, uh, necessarily no land-based travel that is being interrupted um, um, to a large extent. So, I mean, what does it mean to sort of think about these unravelings across the ocean Right. And that's that's where I sort of wanted to think about this idea of other partitions. Um, that said, as I mentioned, there is the long shadow of the 47 India-Pakistan partition that's cast uh, um, on the lives of these people. So, for example, if you go to, um, I know we're going to get into the chapters later, but in the chapter to, uh, that deals with application forms um, for diasporic, um, uh, communities in Sri Lanka they're asked to declare themselves either Indian or Pakistani before they can claim salon citizenship um so there, there's that that notion is already embedded in these emerging national citizenship regimes that one has to be either or um and then uh you know once you come to the end of the book you see that a lot of the displaced persons from Burma in the 60s um um you know are, in, in later years, are being housed um, alongside um, evacuees and displaced persons from um, from what was um, East Pakistan. So there are continuities and really interesting um, and very moving sort of intersections between these two events. Um, but I hope that the book will sort of also shine a light on these these sort of a lesser known partitions um, and in that way maybe begin to think about you know does the same framework apply can we use um, un- you know can we use um, all of the wonderful insights that historians of the partition have offered um, uh, you know to to be thinking about these sort of unravelings um, what is the banality of these encounters um, um, and and, and you know how, how does that contrast with the violence and the the, um, the uh, um, loss of life that accompanied um, the 47 partition? So how do we kind of think about these things? So it does raise all of those questions and I think those are generative ones.
0: Of course, I, I think that that's such a wonderful answer to get us started off with uh, the chapters of the book. And really this book begins in media res with mm-hmm. this occupation of Burma setting the stage for a series of political convulsions across South and Southeast Asia. In this very first chapter, you write about the system of border controls, both geographic Mm -hmm. and juridical, that emerged both during and after the war. So on a very basic level, how did URM2 and the subsequent independence movements in India, Burma, Ceylon, and Malaya impact the established patterns of migration and trade across the Bay of Bengal? And how did these legal battles reflect the tensions between preserving earlier ways of life and adjusting to the changing political and economic landscape after the war? How might the view from Rangoon, for example, be mm-hmm. different from that from Colombo?
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, Kevin. That's a wonderful question. Um, and as you say, you know, um, uh, the story begins in nineteen forty-two, um, but it is uh, uh, you know, and it ends in nineteen sixty-two. The book is. bookend the two bookends are these two displacements um, uh, from Burma, Um, and as I said earlier, I mean my vantage point is Madras, but one could potentially think of other vantage points one you know one could use to kind of tell that story. But back to the book, Um, so you know those two displacements bookend the book, Um, and it is really um, it it is really to sort of my hope was that, that that structure will sort of make reflect the argument which was that in the context of debates over political belonging, the main question that was being asked of these people who um, had been previously mobile across these these borders um the main question that was being asked was where were you in 1942 mm-hmm. um and it was uh, it, the, the I wanted the structure to reflect, um, uh, the 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 notion that, you know, at, at the time that uh, because of the Japanese occupations, people were being displaced from all across Southeast Asia, that there was no sense of what, um, uh, you know, that it was going to be a sort of a life-altering event, that there was no sense that they would be unable, be unable to return to their homes or places of work. Um, it was very much viewed by the people who left Um, as a sort of temporary movement, um, that they would go, they would, you know, seek shelter and, you know, from a potential air raid or a potential occupation of Kilamba or and that they would return. Um, And so, you know, that temporariness is is what, uh, it it proves to be a false hope. Um, And at the time, you know, just a few years later, once, um, once um, India in gains independence, um, um, you know the, the questions about political belonging, what 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 will our border politic look like? Um, what does what, what what will citizenship mean to us? So on and so forth. Those questions are emerging, and the question of what happens to these people who were previously moving um, across uh, uh, these borders uh, becomes a salient one, and there's no easy answer. Um, And this is, again, where we sort of return to the question of the partition, right? Because, you know, when the the Indian constitution is uh, introduced, um, they uh, do have provisions in there to do with what would happen to people whose families were impacted by the partition, their provisions um, for their citizenship. Uh, But what, you know, the way in which these Provisions could be leveraged um, to seek some sense of political belonging for these diasporic communities. Is is not it's not that clear. It's not clear, for example, whether or, you know um, a, a trader in Kollambo could be registered as an Indian citizen um, under the Indian Constitution because because India didn't have a citizenship act at that at that point. It doesn't appear on the statute books until 1955. Um, but there is a constitution that comes into force in 1950. So if there is that moment where it's unclear um, what would happen to these diaspora communities. And that's where these legal disputes sort of um, become salient because there's this struggle between, look, where would we, whose citizenship should we seek? Whose citizenship do we want to seek? Um, and so on and so forth. So... Um, there is, there is that sort of moment of um, living, there's this living in moment where it's, it's not entirely clear. And I hope that when you read the book, that you get that sense of anxiety and confusion, and um, I, I don't know, hopefully sort of made that palpable in the prose. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's that question. And it's not like the governments themselves have a very clear picture of how this is going to go, right? Um, and this is, again, maybe return to the to the 1942 moment because right before the Japanese occupation, uh, the governments of India and Burma and Ceylon are all engaged in trying to come to uh, some sort of agreement over what's going to happen to Indian immigration um, uh, to these countries. And it, it gets abandoned due, due to the war. Um, but you know, just five years later, it's a completely different reality. Those are, agreements are not revived. Uh, you know, each of those governments is working from their own citizenship uh, on their own citizenship legislation. Um, and um, you know they, they, they have to find a way to make it all fit together. Um, and you know, towards the end of the book, I show how it, it all kind of comes together or doesn't quite. In the 1960s, and obviously this is all still a lot in progress, um, as you can tell with the current situation. Um, you also asked what, how the um, how the view looks. You know, the view on uh, the view is different from Calamba and Rangoon and I think that's a really interesting question. Um and the way I tried to to deal with it in the book is simply to follow the travels of law, and where the archival trail led, I followed. Um, so it's just sort of reading along the grain. there might be other ways to deal with that question. And it's, you know, what I what I definitely wanted to avoid was to write it as a sort of comparative history, right? And here's what happened in India and here's what happened in Sri Lanka. and here's what happened in Burma because then that would be going back to that sort of framework that we had earlier where you would you would look at these places as silos and they were not silos um, for the people who are trying to, Retain um, the networks and back, you know, their their networks and their their ability to move between those places. They that wasn't their perspective. So I tried to adopt that in work.
0: Thank you so much for that answer, uh, Dr. Ramna. I want to. That's perhaps actually a really good way for us to segue into the next chapter, uh, titled Banana Money, where you take <laughs> a banana object, the banana currency that circulated around the yes. world other of Japanese occupied Southeast Asia, this this mm-hmm. object that I, you know, that I find in my grandparents' collection yes. to look into broader questions of capital, credit, and money circulations in the wake of post-war economic collapse. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was fortunate enough to get a bit of a preview of this chapter in your article, Intertwined Itineraries, where you likewise focus on the case of Sita Lakshmi Achi, the widow mm-hmm. of Chetia, moneylender, as an point into interrogating the emergence of nationalist mobilizations toward land nationalization mm-hmm. and foreign-owned businesses. So how do these migrants navigate the changing legal and economic regimes, and how does this complicate the standard narrative of decolonization?
1: Absolutely. Um. So this is the f- this is the chapter um that is centered on a sort of debt recovery case. This is the most staple of legal disputes, right? I mean, if you're uh, you know, the uh, uh, a bounced check uh, uh, and a, a promissory note that was not honored and so on and so forth. I mean, this is the most banal uh, uh, of legal cases that one might find in the, uh, find in the archive. So this is, uh, except that in this particular case, it involves a Chettyar family that had businesses both in Madras and in Burma and um, who also operated through a system of agents and, you know, um, we know from the previous work on JTR biking networks and so on and so forth that um, uh, the, the, the the JTR uh, merchants often dealt with uh, businesses in multiple sites through agents. Um, they had agents who would travel to Burma, to Ceylon, to, um, uh, you know, all over the place. Um, and, and they would stay for three years and then come back. Um, and this is the, this particular case involved an agent who um, who stayed back during the war, <laughs> during the occupation of Rangoon, um, and you know he carried out some transactions on behalf of um, a merchant who was located or trader who was located in Madras. After the war ends, um, the question becomes, you know, were those um, were, were those repayments or? Money, um, valid. Uh, the repayments were made using occupation currency or what was uh, referred to the, the press at the time as banana money. Um, because it had you know the, the currency notes had a little, you know, a, a picture of a banana plant on it. <laughs> so, um, you know, for, for, for Burma, it was actually a pagoda. Uh, so those you know, could people transact in this money? Did that money have any value after the war ended and the occupation was over? Um, and so the legal dispute was about that. Mm. Could one honor those repayments? Um, so I used that, that that sort of, you know, minor legal dispute to look at how, um, what the fallout of the war was um, and how did these cases end up in Madras? Um, and so, you know, it, it, it was because they were displaced during the war. They had all, many of them, uh, you know, fled um, back, with the with the exception of some of these cases that I mentioned. But they all had to find a way to kind of rebuild uh, their trade networks, and rebuild their money-lending networks, and so on and so forth. Um, so um, that's that's what this case was about, and it, I think it, it it is a different. Uh, a different sort of sense of wh- how decolonization worked, because these cases they extended to the 1960s and 70s. If you look, and we go all the way up to the Indian Supreme Court, they're still litigating the question of whether uh, wartime currency was uh, was um, and w- 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 what value it had. Um, you know, they eventually, as you can see in the chapter, they find they sort of um, uh, de- uh, how do you call it retroactively. Give it some um, uh, uh, give it some value. There's a sliding scale uh, that says, "All right, if you had 10 rupees in occupation currency into 10 dollars, it 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 means it it is worth this much now." Um, and so, you know, all it does is spawn more legal disputes. And you know, uh, there's a newspaper article from that time that says, "This is only going to make more money for lawyers," and that's true. It ends up being these very long drawn out disputes. Um, But this is also, you know, uh, a way for me to, you know, the dispute also highlights an argument that I'm making in the book, which is that the time of decolonization, right, the temporalities that are generated in legal disputes, through legal disputes, really stretch the time of decolonization for people. If you are in the 1960s and still being asked about what was happening um, with your agents and (laughs) merchants during the Japanese occupation, then it's, it's, It's as though that is still alive, right? And if you've ever been, you know, if you've read an ethnography of a of a law court, you've been in a law court. You see how it's circling back to the past constantly. So it's that sense of, uh, you know, you know, of uh, of of uh, of that moment still being kept alive, and what that means for um, how people experience decolonization. That I think disputes like this sort of illuminate. Of
0: course, uh there's a larger point here, I think, to be made as well about mm-hmm. the staggered temporality, of decolonization that you capture mm-hmm. so beautifully in the book. Mm-hmm. Because decolonization unfolds really as a very staggered process of Indian yes. Pakistan in nineteen forty seven, but Ceylon in forty eight, Malaysia in fifty seven, and then Singapore finally in sixty-five. Mm-hmm. Uh, and here, I think that um, this really gets at the argument that's central to your third chapter, where you have the question of tax residents and the flight of refugee capital. In yes. order to illuminate the legal battles around the wealth of the Chetias, Yes, it might perhaps be an opposite moment to ask, would you tell us a bit more about who the Natukata Chetias were as a community oh, and yes. aspects of their economic life, including ship-based remittances, circular mm-hmm. migration and customary business practices, were disrupted by competing taxation regimes. And of course, I also have to mention here the gorgeous photographs you have in your book of yeah. the Chetia Temple in Rangoon. We really have a wonderful sense of the geographies and landscapes left behind by yeah. the travels of Chetia capital uh, in the early turn of century all across Southeast Asia and in the abandoned yeah. mansions of, of Chetinaat today in towns like mm-hmm. Kar- and Buddha so I would really want to invite you to perhaps talk a bit more about your research process uh, behind writing this chapter as well. Um
1: so the third chapter, thanks, Kelvin. Um yes, I, I also encourage readers to take a close look at the photographs. They are um, you know, they they formed a big part of, you know, how I wanted to write this book. As I mentioned at the beginning, I wanted it to have a powerful sense of place. Um um, you know, also because law is not just a moral or philosophical or theoretical question out there. It is something that is, you know, very much tied to Western nuclear. So um, the photographs were a sort of gesture to to that, and I had the very good fortune of being able to travel to these places to be able to see what that, what you know, what the remnants of these networks. Uh, looked like um, and meet with some of those people. So even if it isn't directly in the book, I hope that, um, you know, my own retracing of those tips uh, lends a certain quality to, <laughs> to the to the pros that um, I hope readers will enjoy. Um, but in particular to the question of the Chetiers, so the Chetiers are, are initially traders um and um, eventually money lenders and financiers, and both politically and uh, economically speaking, um, extremely prominent um, as part of the diaspora, both in Southeast Asia, but also eventually um, East Africa and so on and so forth. So they, are, they have very widespread networks. They, um, Start as grain and salt traders on the uh, on the on the southeastern coast um, of India, um, and then they eventually start moving out um, to Colombo, to Yeah to uh, Burma and so on. But it is in Burma that they have their largest investment. Um, um, they, uh, if you look at the legal records from. The late 19th century onwards, you will see long uh lists of cases. Um, um long if you look at the administrative records, uh, you know, references to chettyasa every day. So they have a very sort of prominent role to play in Obama. And this is not something this is, you know, we know this from previous scholarship that the followed imperial networks um, and, and, you know, were able to act as um, often as intermediaries. Uh, so p- for people who couldn't secure your credit from a European bank, for instance, um, they kind of played that role, playing uh, the role of a middleman. But they also had their own investments. They were investing in land, um, uh, in sawmills and so on and so forth. But it is really the story, um, you know, we know this from, you know, histories of migration, um, particularly if you look at Sunila, it's crossing the Bay of Bengal, which was so formative um, for my own thinking about these networks, you know, you, you the Chagyas go there too. But in the 1930s, it's with the depression that they, uh, you know, the, the global economic depression that things become very murky um, and they, you know, they do not, um, uh, they 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 never lent out without some kind of collateral. Um, so you know, collateral was often land. Um, and when these um, loads were not repaid, they foreclosed, um, uh, or they sort of took hold of the collateral. And that's how they became, you know, the 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 landowners to the extent that they were in Burma. Um, and so you know they you know they they also as a result of this became quite prominent in political circles and you'll see a lot um, in the book um, about how they made a case for themselves as um, central to the post-war economic future that Burma ought to have you know they say we have invested that's the story they tell that's the that we have invested all of this money we have invested our energies you know, we want to see Burma prosper and so on and so forth. But, you know, eventually um they do um much of the land is nationalized, much of their wealth they, they were uh, the wealth from Burma they are unable to recover. Um at the same time, hopefully as chapter three shows, um, there were remittances being made from Burma to India beginning in the thirties. Um and that, you know, you know, it's it's not an insignificant sum of money, and um, much of this um, coincides, or uh, perhaps because of this, uh, you know, there are lots of debates over introducing any income tax legislation, which wasn't particularly important for India until then, uh, is really in response to these remittances made by diaspora communities, including the Chettiar's, that they um, uh, that they start thinking about who was a who who needs to pay tax? Um, who um what 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 was the quantum of tax that should be paid? So it's very technical, uh, but also incredibly uh, incredibly important. In that you know they uh, it, it was really about you know who has to pay, who gets to benefit from um, um benefit from uh, uh, the resources of a particular country. So. In the end, the question of residence becomes very, very salient um, to these tax cases, um, and the the displacement during the occupation plays a central role because uh, some of these remittances are made during the war, and so on and so forth. And you can just imagine that they were trying to be uh, uh, trying to have it both ways. So then the question becomes, you know, how do we? There was no double taxation agreement in place at that time. Eventually, one is crafted in response to these stories. So, you know, it's 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 much more about you know what how do how do we measure out um, the lengths of time um, that is needed for someone to be seen as belonging to a country and tax tax cases become a way for me to kind of think about that, a way for the reader to kind of get a sense of just how really. Seemingly minor cases can also illuminate these broader questions. And just
2: minor, but I was amazed how did you transform such a dry source as Jack <laughs> into <laughs> this fluid narrative and beautiful myths histories uh, we went into. And uh, yeah.
1: I'm, I'm glad we yeah. Uh, yeah I'm I'm a tax. <laughs> <laughs> Income but, tax is certainly not the most compelling of. I uh-huh. okay, so can't see
2: but <laughs> and you take another another dry archive, which is which is um, the uh, passports and citizenship, uh-huh. which uh-huh. you take yeah. on in chapter for uh, application forms, yes. uh, and the concept of citizenship plays a significant role in the book, and yes. um, and you focus particularly on uh, a paper technology that we you know oh. as uh, naturalization applications, mm-hmm. which by tea plantation labor in Ceylon. Mm-hmm. did these migrants uh, experience citizenship during and after decolonization, especially considering the shifting political dynamics across uh, the Balkan Straits dividing uh, Lenka from uh, the subcontinent? Can you share some examples from this chapter that uh, illustrates how migrants' uh, narratives challenge the idea of static national identities and how these uh, fragile pieces of paper uh, Remittance, phones, properties, uh, personal letters assume such heightened significance during this time.
1: Absolutely. Thank you, Ahmed. Um so I should I should say as a as a perhaps as you know that this will be helpful for the reader. And I don't know if you know this was something that was compelling to to you both as you read the book. Um each of the each of the chapters is centered around a different kind of paper. So, you know, banana money and then tax receipts, and then finally application forms. Um, because I think this is the sort of thing that you know one encounters in the archives so the sort of thing that I encountered in the archives um so the ch- chapter four which has to do with application forms um and it's it's a sort of pivot chapter in the book um and it talks about um um primarily um, applications application forms for naturalization in salon um um not sri lanka uh, that i encountered in the national archives of sri lanka um, and so you know much of these uh but many of these application forms were were, uh, were fired by plantation laborers um who were themselves um brought over from um, southern um, medias, um to work in the tea carton beginning in the in the 19th century um and so the You know, the the reason why there's just so many different kinds of papers, you mentioned, remittance forms, the uh, property deeds, and so on and so forth, is because these archives were the archives of the Commission for the Registration of Indian and Pakistani residents. Um, So these were basically case files um, that were compilations of inquiry reports. Um, And they are... um, they, they also included all of the evidence that was submitted as part of the naturalization application. So you see really um, in very sort of gra- in a granular ways, you know, the, the sediment of people's lives, you know, as they sort of try to, um, uh, as they try to piece together a narrative about how they belonged and so on. Um, so, you know. To the planted, you know, uh, uh, some readers will be likely familiar with the context, um, but for others, um, uh, beginning in the late ni- uh, beginning in the nineteenth century, um, um, the um, laborers are brought to work from southern Madras to Ceylon to work in central Sudan, to work on the plantations, um, which was primarily coffee and then planting tea, um, and then. You know, many of them had been, in, you know, brought to work as children. They settled there, spent their whole lives. They were married, went to school, had children, so on so. They very much uh, um, spend their lives in Ceylon. There are others that were born in Ceylon. Um, you know, had never seen India and so on and so forth. There are also others that you know, uh, were whose lives were chronicled in these. Archives that were not on the plantations, but the the bulk of the chapter has to do with plantation laborers. Um, so one of the stories that I tell in the in the chapter is that of a um, um, Kandaswami Thayar, who is uh, a laborer who fa- tries to uh, apply for Silani citizenship. Ceylonese so citizenship is offered. Um, but you know, first through the Ceylon Citizenship Act 1948, so not just in nineteen twenty eight, soon after Ceylonese independence. Um and then uh they tell her because that particular legislation did not have provisions for people like the like Mudaya, um, uh, there's a different enactment uh uh brought into force called the Indian Pakistani Resident Citizenship Act. And under that you had to basically um prove uh, that you intended to permanently settle on the island, that you had been in continuous residence for a period of years, and that you had no ties to any other place, uh, in particular to India or or Pakistan. And uh, it is in the course. So you file an application, and then a commissioner comes in and examines all of the evidence and decides whether or not it's compelling. If it's not compelling, you're called in for an inquiry, um, where you're questioned on all of the evidence, you're asked to you know furnish witnesses and so on and so on. the end of it, you know the commissioner tells you whether you um are eligible for citizenship or not. Um, and so Mutaya was Mutaya's uh, application was one of those. Um, and so you know you see all kinds of things. There's like a the little extract from a post office savings bank book. <laughs> um, there are little receipts uh, that he has from sort of this petty trade that he did before he became a laborer, um, you know, and so on and so forth. So there's like really the, the you know, the everydayness of life is sort of captured by that. Um, the commissioner in Mutayas' case calls him in for an inquiry. Um, he asks him questions about why his ch- there are no records relating to his children, how they could he could prove that they had been there Continuously resident for the time period that are required by the legislation, um, he says, "Look, your witnesses are not credible, so on and so forth." And really, at the end of that story, we we don't know what happens to Mutaya, and this is you know a feature of the archive, but also you know something that historians often face, particularly when dealing with marginalised histories of this kind. Uh, that we really don't know what happened to Mutaya and his family um it's really only through this paper trail that we can get a sense of his life um uh, we don't know if he claimed a different identity whether he disappeared whether he was quote unquote repatriated to India um we have we have no idea what happens to him at the end barring this this sort of application and its inquiry.
0: That's such a beautiful way of really reconstructing history. story. Um, and here, I think that I want to perhaps link this a little bit to your next chapter, titled Women Who Wait, where you examine the relationship between political attachments and familial attachments. Mm-hmm. And similarly, sort of do this work of reconstructing these very everyday, very quotidian, very familial relationships with so much detail and care. And ultimately, you offer a far more nuanced portrayal of the domain of family law. Um, So central to these legal arguments were really competing visions of citizenship that emerged uh, in this period of decolonization. So you have Jus Solis on one hand and Jus Sanguinis on the other. Mm -hmm. And these debates in your account came to be manifest most prominently in the shifting legal categories accorded to Tamil-speaking Muslims across the Bay of Bengal. So why did this community that variously becomes known as Coast Wars or Tamil Muslims or even jawi baranakan in different places It is quite so central to the legal battles that you're recounting in this chapter
1: and so wonderful question and I think my intention with you know uh with that chapter was to really you know bring together all of the threats that you know the, the different chapters had offered and just you know sort of also make the larger point that this was never about just the particular people that um that one is it it's sort of snowballs into something larger, right? I mean, so if the citizenship debate or over, you know, whether plantation laborers belonged or not um in Ceylon, and given that the um their ancestor ancestors had been brought over, it was not never about just um then, it was also about what it meant to belong to those players. Um you know, to salon, um, um, and I think you know it also affects uh, the Sri Lankan Tamil community in a different way, and I sort of also made gestures to that. So it wasn't ever that look, ah, thank, thank goodness, this doesn't doesn't pertain to us. It was never about that. That these these minor sort of moves that are being made in order to disenfranchise. Um, the the most marginalized of communities eventually tend to have repercussions for the broader body politic. And this is, you know, the, in the case of the Tamil-speaking uh, 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 Muslim traders, and, you know, I, I make a note at the end about the language that is used to describe these uh, Muslims uh, in Sri Lanka. Um, so I, I would urge readers to sort of you know, get to that as well. But basically, um, as I mentioned earlier, these application inquiries were not, or these citizenship inquiries were not sort of um, restricted to plantation laborers. They started having an impact on um, other communities as well. And so um, uh, many um, uh, traders, uh, you you know, they, they, they were able, because of the proximity of um, uh, Lanka to uh, the southeastern coast of India. It's, it, it, some readers will know that it's only 22 miles um, apart at its narrowest range. Um, because of that proximity, I mean, this was never, you know, a situation where it was considered two different, you know, uh, nation states that, that, that were not bridgeable, right? I mean, there were people who traveled back and forth between these places all the time. Um, and so in the chapter, I sort of try to capture that uh, through the story of two traders, um, um, and how they their sort of linkages um, to their families who were located in India are seen as or re um, interpreted as being a political attachment. That look, if you were sending money back to your family, you know, that should be seen as uh, uh, a betrayal of sorts. It's it's as though one is not fully, one doesn't fully belong to uh, Shlaka, that you had other loyalties. Um, And that sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, comes up against customary ways in which people lived their lives, um, you know, where. Um, women uh, stayed behind and men traveled. Um but you know I sort of hope to unsettle that sort of formulation to say, look, they weren't just sitting there waiting. <laughs> and that's just, you know, the they were living their lives. Um and you know that 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 didn't necessarily translate into a kind of political attachment of the sort that um um Or the states were keen to to sort of deduce from that sort of that sort of migrant lifestyle. So you know that's what I was hoping to do with that 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 chapter. And then of course, I mean, it takes place. I mean, both of these chapters, and indeed all of them, take place against the background of sort of a rising crescendo of like you know we don't we don't need. Um, migrant investment, we don't need migrants here and so on and so forth. Um, but, uh, you know, I've tried to kind of keep that in the background and foreground um, people's lives deliberately because I wanted to kind of see you know, what what, what did it mean for migrants themselves to try and preserve these? You know, it's not necessarily a, a declaration of political loyalty. It could be many more other things and so that's what I was hoping to do with that um with that chapter but perhaps there's something else that that struck you <laughs> um that you want me to talk about. No of course
0: because I I think that the sense of place that you've uh prioritized throughout the writing of this book really shines through in this particular chapter. Uh I re- I'm just remembering my time in Dalai Manar, uh mm-hmm. in the northern province of Sri Lanka earlier this year mm-hmm. where standing at the pier you could Make out the horizon in the horizon, uh, the the contours of India, and likewise when I travelled down to Danushkodi, which is a mm-hmm. port that was ruined by the cyclone in the nineteen sixties. But mm-hmm. prior to that was the active site of this uh of multiple crossings between mm-hmm. India and Sri Lanka. Mm-hmm. You would get a sense of how close these geographies are. Yeah. Uh, like and in this chapter, that sense of skill and that sense of place really, really shown through, and I really quite enjoyed it.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I Thank think that you.
0: I, I I think that what you do a remarkable job as well is in Chapter 6, where you focus on the repatriation of labor migrants from all these places, Burma, Ceylon, Malaya, especially those with leftist sympathies who were expelled en masse back to Madras. Mm-hmm. And for me, this was one of the most moving chapters in your book, and I found myself incredibly swayed by your reconstruction of how post-war national regimes moved to banish and deport migrants by labeling them as insurgents, as communists, Mm -hmm. which posed a grave risk of statelessness for for many of these workers.
2: Mm -hmm. So
0: if you could just tell us a bit more about the broader political context for these deportations, why were so many leading independence parties, including ostensibly left-wing ones, so keen come common cause with ethno-nationalist movements that were quite explicitly exclusionary to its migrants. Mm-hmm. And how does the legal archive of habeas corpus applications provide a lens to emerging understandings of territory, political belonging, and indigeneity?
1: Absolutely. Thanks, Kiarman. And so the chapters that you're referring to, chapter six and seven, actually form part two of the book. And it's you know, it's a it's a shift, um, not necessarily in scale, but it emphasizes up a, a sort of slightly different emphasis, because both have to do much more with the political context in which these legal disputes are emerging. Um, so it's a slightly different emphasis, and that's why it forms a different section of the uh the book. So in chapter six, um I I called it red flags, um and it has to do with habeas Corpus litigation um, in the Madras High Court. That has to do with you know what the the the, the intelligence officials call the Malayan detainees, and these are um, uh, men who young men um, who are being deported or banished from there, um, and they land up in Madras, and some of them. Many of them have no prioritized movements at all, apart from being of Indian descent. Um and the question becomes, you know, um, the question becomes, you know, where do they belong? Uh they've been uh banished uh from uh, from Singapore um uh, on grounds of having leftist tendencies and then also at the same time uh in Madras, um, uh, you know, having no ties, no one to kind of come and bail them out or anything of that sort. The political context in which this is happening, um, as you will see um, from sort of the beginning paragraphs of that chapter, is really the uh, uh, the emergency, um, what was called the emergency in India, um, and simultaneously also a massive pushback against left-wing parties in mm-hmm. In Madras, um, again, this ties back to the partition in a sort of way, right? This move in Madras to um, to sort of silence dissent through um, what were called public order le- acts or public order legislation. Um, or some of the major sort of you know um, public order legislation had provisions like indefinite detention. Um, you could uh, you could be um, you know confined to your home. Uh, they, uh, you know, uh, police officials could confiscate uh, um, written materials, so on. So they, so they are sort of a, the precursors of uh, what is today like a lot of sort of um, anti-terror legislation and security legislation. Um, and they were initially put in place in the late 1940s to deal with what, you know, the government believed was going to be communal violence resulting from the partition. Um, but by and large, the way it was used in Madras was to silence dissent of any kind. Um, and the Madras Maintenance of Public Order Act, under which these, quote, um, unquote and detainees are indefinitely detained, um, is one of those, one of those um, cases. And so, you know, they um, end up being d- Detained with no um sense of why they were being imprisoned, what their stories were, and so on and so forth. So that you know, you see sort of some of those um, you see uh just very sort of sparse um reasoning in the order itself. But if you start tracing their stories in the intelligence reports, you start seeing much more of that story, right? So um you know, towards the end of the chapter, I talk about how, uh, you know, one of them who was, uh, one of the men who was accused of uh, being a trade unionist uh, or a leftist uh, was actually just, and and he was suspected of having those sympathies. uh, was actually some, and and one of the the pieces of evidence against him was that he had changed his name. He was really just doing that to escape trouble at home and so on. So these are just very sort of Um, how do you call it? Uh, There were people with very sort of, uh, very everyday, very banal sort of uh, concerns who get caught up in this whirlwind of, you know, um, uh, you know, new states um, um, trying to impose restrictions on their um, subjects or citizens um, that have to do with, um, uh, that have to do with Politics that was far beyond the horizon of of their own sort of horizons, or uh, you know that they, they had nothing to do with with much of their lives. Um, but there are of course other stories that I tell in the book in which people are sort of uh, uh, you know are do proclaim their leftist and on you know what, what the kind of disproportionate treatment that they receive at the hands of states. Um, one of the things that was really compelling about this chapter for me was the use of the term banishment and the idea that which some readers will know that um, at this time, as Kevin mentioned earlier, um, Malaya, Singapore, Malaya is not independent while India is. And there's still a sort of, um, there are, uh, uh revivals of um, the kind of laws that uh that that seem to belong to another age right and so the notion of banishment itself is very interesting to me I do think there's much more work to be done on this on this um you know to try and tell the full story um, and I hope um, will be able to see much more work on you know, all, all this, on this subject. Um, uh, this is just what I was able to uncover from, you know, the archives that I was able to access in Mudas. And you've done
2: a great job with that. And honestly, every chapter could be a project on its own for, <laughs> for graduate students who are listening yeah. yeah. to uncover more. And the events really uh, accelerate in the final chapter, 1962. Uh, where you return once again to Burma, and this time on the cusp of yet another political upheaval of General uh, Ne Win's military takeover of the country, and the implementation of a series of uh, of increasing punitive uh, legislative measures, which are mm-hmm. the restriction of migrant uh, remittances, new documentary requirements for quote unquote foreigners, and rising rates of income tax. Mm-hmm. So. By this point, would you argue that the closure of a formerly mobile world uh, for migrants had completely ceased to exist? Uh, How does the category of citizenship uh, uh, become the paradigmatic category for formerly uh, mobile actors? Uh, How did these political changes uh, pose different impacts across the Bay of Bengal and in India, and Myanmar, as well as in Malaysia and Singapore?
1: Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. I mean, so in in many ways, the sixty-two, uh, you know, the 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 decision to end the the narrative in sixty-two is sort of somewhat artificial, right? And um, it is meant to, as I mentioned earlier, signal to the the structure of the argument, which is that you know the 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 the, the displacement was central to the story of citizenship in ways that have not been fully understood previously. Um, so I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily say that um uh, the uh, the story ends with 62. I mean certainly you see a repetition of certain patterns, the use of you know, taxation or immigration or um detention regimes to um restrict people from engaging in mobility across borders, right, with the military coup in Burma. Um, you see that there isn't a banishment of sorts of the sort that you see in chapter six, but also a slow unraveling, a tightening of the screws. You know, the idea that one has to now choose, you know, being compelled to choose between one place or the other. I think citizenship, um, you know, many of the uh, many of the, the, the sites that I study in or India, Salon, Burma, they all have their citizenship legislation in place, but it's certainly not a settled matter. Um, nor importantly, is it a settled matter for the people who are uh, trying to reestablish those uh, those patterns of mobility. Um, that said, I mean, it, it, is a, it is what it is, right? I mean, it's a, the, the decolonization is an ongoing process. I mean, just as I was starting work on this dissertation, I remember... Um, there was a piece in the financial Times that came out to said to Burma for our properties. So you know, there was this brief moment before obviously what's happening in Burma right now. where um, uh, the possibility existed that you know some of these things would be, some of these matters would re- be reopened. Um, this year marks 200 years of the Malaya Tamil uh, struggle for whole recognition as, as citizens in Sri Lanka. Um, some readers might have seen uh some of the events that are associated with um with that sort of milestone, uh, you know, the march um from Talaymannar to uh, uh, you know, to, to central what was central salon, um, sort of to draw attention to what is happening with the Malay community that was also impacted by the Civil War. Um, that is happening at the moment. Um you know the the place that was that Kelvin was alluding to earlier in Dhanushkodi, uh, where there is uh, there was the, the quarantine camp where um, um, labourers were inspected quote unquote before they boarded the ferry for, for Lanka was is now a refugee camp. It still stands. Um, the uh, inspection bungalow there is called kelaniya <laughs> So really remnants of many of those those past still ongoing it's still incredibly difficult for uh, sri lankan tamil refugees in india to gain full indian citizenship um those who are repatriated to india quote unquote um do not have full access um to land ownership um and uh you know the the story the you know they, these old stories are being made new all the time, including the use of repressive legislation to silence silence political dissent. That happens too, um, in in unsurprising ways. Um, so you know I wouldn't say that any of these stories have come to an end, um, but you know the book has to come to an end. <laughs> so um, so in a sense, I wanted to you know if only uh, to lend a certain um, 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 to allow the reader to kind of um, to be able to contain those stories you know, if, if only for a moment you know that that was my thinking behind the 42 and the 62 displacements Ram Burma but of course there are many more many more stories waiting to be uncovered and of course
0: you know uh, like you said Professor Ramna the, the impact of your book the import of your book uh, far exceeds this closing moment of 1962 many of Political upheavals that we uh, have been witnessing, you know, today all across the Bay of Bengal, from Sri Lanka to Myanmar to Southeast Asia, uh, are, you know, they can they, they can be directly traced back to this foundational moment of establishing different forms of citizenship regimes uh, all across the Bay. Mm-hmm. So, we have a conclusion. I perhaps want to invite you to talk a bit more about how your book as a whole might contribute to our understanding of decolonization and its mm-hmm. complexities, uh, particularly in the context of migration and citizenship. Mm-hmm. What takeaways or lessons uh, can readers gain from the book about the about the questions of migration, identity, and nation-building in the wake of empires?
1: Thanks, Kevin. I think there's, uh, as you mentioned, I mean, there's some more direct ways in which you can see how um, the fallout of the ways in which Citizenship was directly tied to certain understandings of loyalty, uh, to certain understandings of descent and birth, Um, um, have had a sort of um, ongoing uh, impact on the way in which we see who is an insider, who's an outsider, who belongs and who doesn't. Um and this isn't just a question of a political debate, and I hope the book shows that this has everything to do with how uh, you know people live day to day it has you know it's it's not it's not a it's not a political problem necessarily only right I mean, it's also something that um uh you know we have to kind of grapple with um on a day to day basis um it has. Ongoing implications for the way in which we think about statelessness, um, particularly, um, you know, its attention to documentary regimes and how um, they can often, um, um, you know, sort of be seen as a neutral or logical way to think about, you know, if it's it's legal, it has to be documented. I mean, that, you know, can often be a farce. um, and, you know, one shouldn't really be thinking of, do, you know, the use of documents alone as a way to solve the problem of statelessness or of belonging. Um, and I think it has, um, you know, I, th- I think it has ongoing implications for the way in which we think about these places as as though one can. You know what's happening on one shore of the Indian Ocean has implications for what's happening on the other end. You know, it's not necessarily that um, one can forget this that not so long ago moment, <laughs> and um, yeah, you know there there are now shared concerns and shared uh, challenges that that have to be met, and you know they, uh, one has to sort of. Yeah discard some of these uh, ways in which we think about indigeneity in particular of or, or belonging who's belong who arrived first who um, who's lived the longest here or who came from where I mean so some of these questions, um, where were you when the state needed you and so on and so forth I mean these are these are some of the underlying questions I think that fuels much of the political debate and we see hopefully through this book, um, how the the ongoing uh, damage that that can do um so that's in in very sort of broad terms what I hope uh what I hope the import of this book will be um but also the sense of you know how do we think about decolonization of course it's a term that is often appropriated um, to mean a certain return to an authentic uh uh, an authentic way, <laughs> and I think that question—that that that question of um, you know, although I don't use it in that way in this book, decolonization is really here in the book to mean um, uh, the sort of political and diplomatic negotiations around the withdrawal of empires, and this was an attempt to be able to speak to an audience that was interested in international relations and so on and so forth. Um, but it also you know i think uh it threaded to the book is this this um uh this this idea that there is that that this other way of look we should we should think about decolonization as of turn to authenticity is you know has been appropriated uh, to serve nationalist sentiments and that's going to get us nowhere so um I hope the book does some of that work, <laughs> um, and hopefully raises questions for others to follow.
2: Um, yes, and, and the beautiful thing about it is that rather than having only a, a top-down approach that looks at you know the situation from uh, the state down, we have this textured uh, history uh, multiplying, you know, voices and and viewpoints. Uh, it really relates not just to different parts of the Indian Ocean during this time, but also across the world, uh, these mm-hmm. questions of relevance and implications. And as much as I would love this conversation to keep going, uh, we have uh, to uh, end here, uh, but I would urge the uh, listeners to go and pick up the book to really enjoy the prose itself beside the history and uh, pick up on all of these stories uh, that we've just touched the surface of, and there's much more to learn about. And uh, we have one more question before letting you go. This is our chat question. It's very unfair because the book is just out. (laughs) Well, I gotta ask it for the audience. Um, What are you working on now, Uh, or to hope to work on in the future since the book is out? (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, yes, I mean, but it's also, you know, one of the great joys of being um, a historian has had the good fortune of being able to delve into so many rich archives and, you know, uh, is that, you know, the projects just present themselves <laughs> at every turn. Um, so my next project is also most definitely an Indian Ocean project, um, hopefully still a story about South Southeast Asia. Um, and I'm, I'm sort of exploring the idea of abandoned places um, and how, uh, you know, how abandonment can function as a technique of sovereignty. Um, so I'll be stepping uh, stepping back from the mid 20th century moment, hopefully Doing a much more sort of long duration um, project. I've written a little bit about this um, in uh, a piece for in um, uh, a piece for the Center for History and Economics. It's called Temporary, um, and so um, hopefully building on all of those archives to kind of think about abandonment um, as a technique of sovereignty. But there's hopefully hopefully a little bit of a break between now and this next project, but it's, it's at the back of my mind, it's something that I'm thinking about.
2: That sounds fascinating, and we hope to have you again. Thank you so much, Dr. Ramnath, for sharing your time and insights and, and packing the book for the listeners, and thank you for the listeners for tuning in, in which we uh, explored boats in a storm, law migration and decolonization in South and Southeast Asia between 1942 to 1962, published by Stanford University Press in 2023. This is your host, Ahmed El-Mazmi.
0: And I'm Calvin Ng. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.